Chapter 3 They fuck you up, your mum and dad. At my first school, I'm sure I was unremarkable. Quiet and no trouble at all as befits an only child brought up in a house with five adults. This would make me a little in awe of my more sociable and gregarious classmates and create an inner reserve that would never really leave me. Any fun at home was predominantly down to my brother Ronnie, who, after petulantly rejecting my presence at birth, and evidently not being able to even look at me in my cot, became the one who would occasionally gauge and amuse me later on when I was growing up. A rare game of street cricket on the black shale pitch adjacent to the fence at the Hull University's Thwaites Hall prompted the unique events of Dad coming out of the house to join in, and even bowling over. Ronnie injured himself diving for a catch, emerging with a skinned forearm. Little me spectating and aching for the time when I could join in and get such a battle scar trophy. When the bulging screen of our minute black and white telly got poorly and went away for repair, Ronnie would occupy the space and simulate my favourite programmes like The Lone Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy. I can still hear myself giggling helplessly at his antics. Andy Pandy saying goodbye would mean Ronnie collapsing in a heap as if shot. My brother was a mild teenage tearaway who looked as much like Tommy Steele as his twin sister looked like Dusty Springfield. Too much brill cream met too much makeup as they went out on the town to have a good time and try to avoid the teddy boys. They used to borrow Dad's van, but one Sunday morning it had not returned home. It was found in the front garden of an unsuspecting homeowner, one of the few who had the privilege of a front garden back then. Dad was not happy, but Mum was beside herself, always fearing a showing up and carrying on the inquest throughout that Sunday. The day of rest was often the day of discord in the Sewell household. The biggest showing up our kid came up with, however, was his marriage. During his hurried courtship of Denise Sorensen, a little brunette Barbie doll, all the family knew that the match was not right. Her family, and particularly her pushy mother Doris, applied all kinds of pressure to get her hitched to Ronnie as soon as possible, and he fell for it, the dipstick. The wedding day was an indulgent farce, with more all-white bridesmaids than a Bridgetown home attendance. The bride was seriously late, and rumour had it that some sort of seizure was involved. Ronnie looked sad and bemused throughout the proceedings, but not as much as he would during his married life. Denise had continual fits that must have been evident pre-wedding. She couldn't and or wouldn't do anything around the house and was also found to be very fella-fond. Tragically, she quickly fell pregnant and was to bring Teresa into the world, with no intention on the part of either of them to look after her. So poor mum stepped in to rear her third generation and the little girl was brought up as my sister. Mum had been looking in on them regularly to care for the new baby and to muck the house out for fear of another showing up. 
but we were due to go away on holiday and this concerned her. Returning home from our week at Ponting's holiday camp, the rival to Butlin's at the time, little baby Teresa was found to be in Castle Hill Hospital. The woman, who hated kids as well as dogs, rushed down there with me, and although we could only look at the baby from an external window, it was evident that she was covered in bed sores and very poorly. I don't know how it came to happen, but when Teresa was discharged, she came to us at Woods Lane and never went back to her parents. Even with no child to rear, the unhappy couple still couldn't get the marriage functioning, so they came up with the wonderful strategy of having another baby. The gorgeous, blonde-haired, blue-eyed David was sent off to the south bank of the Humber to be brought up by childless Sorrenton relatives, the poor little blighter. Ultimately, he came back to be part of our family, albeit sleeping at his parents' house and sometimes being found in the village, shopping and seeing to himself at an age where he should have been loved and nurtured. Both my little niece and nephew had a rough time, but David was the most disadvantaged and I now look back at that in horror. My mum at times was not user-friendly to me, but she was always there when the vulnerable were in need, and for that she deserves my heartfelt tribute here. She might not have liked kids, but she sure looked after and protected them, as she did her older neighbours. In fact, mum practised the principles of Christianity without being a Christian, whereas those hanging around with my sister Joan, it seemed to me the other way around. This was an early lesson for me in espouse values rather than practice behaviours. And while we have behaviours now at the Sewell Group, rather than the values you often see displayed in a reception area, but fail to find in the behaviour of the reception staff. Ronnie and Denise's marriage broke up steadily, with ritual infidelity on both sides. We in my family were relieved when Denise was committed to hospital in the West Riding and glad we never saw her again. Unfortunately, the losers in the whole human tragedy were poor little Teresa and David, my mum's mental health and my brother's decency. My sister Joan was, by contrast, God Squad, as we call people with religious convictions, having got the calling through the Salvation Army in her late teens. I was made to go with mum and dad to attend her initiation ceremony at the Royal Albert Hall rather than attend a photo shoot for our football team with the National Comic Magazine. This irked me somewhat at the time and still does now a bit for as a consequence there is no formal record of me ever being part of the iconic Cottingham Primary School team. June must have always felt an Amiga female with two vivacious and mischievous twin siblings just a year older. The twins were slightly built Couplins, whereas she was altogether a heavier build, like Grandmother Sewell, the baby machine. She possibly also had Edith's unfortunate manner, as she was always rather self-righteous and sanctimonious, which never went down well with a much younger brother like me. By contrast, Audrey was thin, blonde, modern and fashion conscious. The complete opposite of Joan, she was funny, giggly and self-deprecatory, 
often boasting of her legendary response to the question at school, What is made at the Royal Mints? Her reply, Mintos, a popular sweet of the time, probably said it all about our odd. We didn't have much a relationship when I was young. She naturally being interested in her own thing. She became a hairdresser and when she met Len and got hitched, they put a lot of effort into developing a relationship with me that bordered on being in loco parentis, with mum and dad reverting to being quasi-grandparents. I adored Parksy, as Len was always referred to. He took me to watch Hull City, home and away. He introduced me to fishing. We played cricket. Listened to cricket whilst fishing, with that wonderful test match special team headed by John Arlott, enthralling us on endless summer days on the Swanmore pastures at the back of his house in Beverley, where Balmston Drain yielded its harvest of roach, perch, eels and pike, allegedly. I thanked him by turning out occasionally for the works football team of shipbuilders C.D. Holmes of Beverley, which he ran. It was the Coventry City sky blue shirts that seduced me. Audrey bought me the trendy clothes that made me a 60s teenager and took me out to restaurants such as the four-in-hand Bernie Inn on Sutton Road to enhance my growing sophistication. I got into the music of the Beatles, Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan all on my own, with maybe a little help from the new edgy pirate radio stations anchored off the coast and being able to break the BBC's boring monopoly of what we could hear on the airwaves. It felt like such a pioneering decade and I felt lucky to have been a teenager through it. However, the highlight actually came before I hit my teens when Audrey got three tickets to see The Beatles No Less at the ABC cinema on Ferrens Way. Fans had been queuing round the block for days but Audrey had contacts through her hairdressing fraternity. So it was that she, Len and I had superb seats to experience 30 minutes of mayhem and hysteria as the most phenomenal group in show business history was strutting their stuff no more than 10 metres away from us. The arrogant, wide, short-sighted stance of John, Paul and George sharing a microphone as if they were born to it, and Ringo at the back shaking his head to the driving backbeat he was creating. The place went berserk. Jelly Babies rained down on stage, a ritual at concerts ever since Ringo had said he liked them. Come on, 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 please, please me, oh yeah, like I please you. A girl in front of us fainted as one next to us vomited. She was just 17, you know what I mean, as another three girls rushed the stage. The high-pitched shrill screaming hurt my young ears and I put my fingers in them for some respite. Shake it a baby now, twist and shout. John's voice was about shot, but it sounded so gravelly good. Ah, 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 ah. Four big guitar chords, a synchronised bow, and it was all over. 
the most scary and exhilarating experience of my life was done and I wasn't yet a teenager. We saw them but could hardly hear them above the screams that accompanied Beatlemania. Thank you, Ord. My sister and brother-in-law came up trumps for me once again years later in 1968 when they secured two tickets for the European Cup final which was to be held at Wembley that year. I really don't know how they magicked it. I felt so privileged. As fate would have it, Manchester United made the final against Benfica of Portugal at the end of their long quest for the trophy they pioneered in the UK and desired so much for their legendary manager, Matt Busby. They also had legendary players such as Bobby Charlton, Nobby Styles, and the irrepressible George Best, but were up against world stars in Eusebio, Coluna and Torres. What a prospect for Len and I as we made our way down Wembley Way. I shall never forget emerging from the concourse and into the stadium for my very first glimpse of the mecca of football. The hairs on my neck stood up as I marvelled at the atmosphere, and yet how small and intimate it all felt. We were to witness one of the great occasions in British football and certainly in the history of Manchester United. On a dramatic and a historic night, they defeated the Portuguese champions 4-1 after extra time with wonderful goals, particularly from Bobby Charlton and George Best. The sight of those two kitted out, unusually in dark blue, embracing Matt Busby in a moment of joy and destiny will live with me forever. And I'm a Liverpool fan. Thank you so much, our Roden Parksy. You taught me that experiences and magic moments are the stuff of a fulfilled life. Mum once said it would be difficult for anybody to come up with four such different children as she had. And I have to say that I did wonder sometimes about my lineage. We all went to the same schools in Cottingham, albeit over a decade apart. The primary school buildings next to the church in the village were imposing red brick Victorian edifices to education with high windows you couldn't see out of and hard dark internal finishes that echoed every sound of lively children. One of those sounds was an occasional cry emanating from the J4 classroom where the gorgeous young blonde teacher Miss Lyons would defy modern human rights by whacking you over the knuckles at your desk with a set of bound wooden rulers that were a good substitute for a cane. We kids had a pet name for our instrument of torture, Bertha. Corporal punishment was trendy back then. I much preferred home time to start time, but that changed at the age of eight when I moved up to class J6 and Mr Neil, or Jackie Neil as he was irreverently known, became my teacher. He was reed thin with an earnest, hawkish face that didn't smile a lot, but I did when he announced that it was time for football and took the ill-fitting trousers of his seedy suit into his socks, the only signal that he was ready for action. He led us out onto the small backfield, put four mats down for goalpost, picked sides and we were away. I came alive. Heaven on Northgate. My green and white striped second 11 shirt followed, as did a few tentative games against other schools. 
Jackie selecting us for positions and ultimately organising us brilliantly into a winning formation where we all knew our jobs. He taught me that talent still has to be organised to win. Here are my teammates as I remember them. Graham France, goalkeeper. Adequate, if a little theatrical. He was also a fine cricketer who once bowled out the posh boys of public school Hammers College when they were chasing our pitiful total of 13 runs to win an under-11 school cup game. The Hymers lads were well turned out, but arrogant and sniggering at our makeshift attire and batting attempts at Cotrec that evening. But Franny bowled out the smirking tossers for just 12 runs and we claimed a famous victory. He will always have a place in my affections for that. Graham became another cancer victim. Rest his soul. Philip Wood, right fullback. Bright, maybe too bright for us. Had to go in goal in a big cup final when Franny dislocated his thumb, his cries making sure the whole of Hull knew about it. We were hanging on to a one-goal lead and Phil only got the job because he was nearest to our goal when Jackie Neal made the hasty decision. What Jackie didn't tell him was that he could now handle the ball. He kicked everything away rather than catching it, dribbled around forwards rather than picking it up, and stood nearer to his full-back position than the goal. It was surreal and the crowd were hugely entertained, unlike us. Pick it up, Woody. Get back in goal for Christ's sake. He and we got away with it somehow and we had another cup this time in hugely competitive hull, rather than our sleepy Easter adding. John Bealby, midfield. A superb natural all-round athlete, who I worked with later when he was a mechanical engineer in his father's business and contracting with Sewell. Tragically, I also saw him dying from asbestosis in Castle Hospital years later when I was visiting my sick father-in-law. Tragic, and upsetting. More than half of this champion football team did not live to see 50. David Nicholson, midfield. Quick, athletic, with flared nostrils that heralded a scything tackle. Our defenders were coached to be unceremonious to say the least. When in doubt, clout it out of play. Richard Scrowson, centre-half. Our Bobby Moore of a captain and an intellectual, always a year ahead at school. Mike Horner, midfield. So nice, maybe too nice. Certainly too ginger. Mike Ree, left wing. Tried to lead me astray in my early teens, but I was ahead of him. The most right-footed left winger ever to play the game, always coming back inside to use his better foot. But then again, many who have made a living out of the game have done that. John Revel, inside forward. My gentle, quiet, artistic school friend and tidy, decent midfielder who was with me for a while, both in the Hull City Academy and at Fruit Trades. As we left school and contemplated student life, we were also hippie bandmates as we made music with me on guitar and him on bongos. This was when I was laid up with a serious injury and in a full-length plaster cast. My mum, feeling sorry for me, bought me an acoustic guitar with her bingo winnings one night. 
and lend three chords and we were off. There was one particular song I wrote about my sister entitled I've Been Left on the Shelf, probably our seminal work. Above all though, Revs was a member of a lovely family who I observed as a teenager. They taught me what a functional family looked like. I didn't know how dysfunctional ours was until then. David Burrell, centre forward, always looked destined for stardom. Very small, confident to the point of being seriously cocky, he had young, modern parents, was well connected with all the cool kids and had all the latest gear, including the best football boots. He lived down Endai Lane in a new designer bungalow that I used to visit when my mum was down there at Aunt Gert's next door but three. He was our signature player who scored most of the goals and was the benchmark for the very young me to emulate. The next year saw us filing down through the village to the wreck for our games period on a proper pitch. We were joined by the final piece in the jigsaw when a tall blonde boy came to the school as his parents moved into the area from the West Riding. Quicker and stronger than anybody else, he went straight into the team, despite some viewing this newcomer with suspicion. His name was Ian Grandage, nicknamed Casa the Turk by the impish Dave Borrell. Ian never really shook off that initial different persona that dogged him all the way through school. I put it down to jealousy, which in my experience accounts for so many negative attitudes. Ian was mature, good-looking and attracted the girls, always a good way to lose a boys' popularity contest. He became my best friend and remains so to this day, 60 years on, despite living in the US for the past decade. If I was going to be envious of anybody back then, it would have been of Dave Borrell and Ian Grandage. Ian for his physical gifts and Dave for just being so cool. Jealousy, however, is something I've never really experienced to any degree, and for that I feel really fortunate. It is a pernicious emotion that leads to so much poor and counterproductive behaviour. Glorying in and appreciating the things you have, rather than the things that you have not, I have found is one of the best routes to true happiness. The other big thing that changed when I was eight, was that we moved away from Devon Street, down the new village road and over the level crossing to Northgate, to a brand new house Dad purchased from local builder, Roy Cheeseman. Dad's success in his business finally manifested itself in vastly approved accommodation for the family, albeit one my three siblings would only fleetingly enjoy before they flew the nest. Tenwoods Lane was a red brick box with a red-hipped roof on the corner of Northgate and Woods Lane, opposite the blacksmith's yard. It had gardens that wrapped round to give a feeling of space, and ours had a bit more room to play in than our previous postage stamp of a lawn. I didn't want to go at first, leaving the familiarity of Devon Street and good people like Mr and Mrs Donkin, who always looked out for me, was daunting. Mr Donkin was a retired railwayman of stout figure, friendly face, with white moustache and a black hat that always covered his shiny bald head. He'd looked after our family during the war and I was delighted when he came down to Woods Lane with us to be our gardener and my confidant continuum. He never let me come in or out of the house without showing interest in what I was doing, 
particularly football-wise. With his comforting figure there, it was obviously going to be okay. He couldn't, however, stop Dad having an altercation with the blacksmith opposite in Woods Lane about him not being able to get his beloved car into our new drive. Dad was always going to come off worst with the muscle man who I used to watch in fascination as he created metalwork such as horseshoes from a brightly glowing furnace. I loved the smell and warmth of his small dark workshop. I was allowed to pump the bellows to oxygenate the furnace. He never acknowledged my staring presence, but I was fine with that. Thank God the row with Dad subsided quickly. Back then it was part of being a Sewell to think violence was the answer. I think I must have been born a pacifist because I never followed that path. Even though most kids at school thought that as a Sewell, I must be a hard case. I used to wait patiently on a Friday and Saturday evening for my dad to come home from work at York before running excitedly down the path to meet him, knowing he would pat his pocket and I would reach inside for the bar of Cadbury's dairy milk he always brought me. One Saturday though, there was much more than a bar of chocolate. He had called in at a farm on the way home from York to pick up a black and tan collie pup. It was given to me as a present but also as a lesson because he expected me to look after and care for the dog as my responsibility at the age of eight. I would exercise Prince down to the waterworks at the bottom of the lane and watch him chase the Beverly train across the fields. But in truth, mum would feed him even though she didn't care that much for dogs. He slept in the veranda and one night I felt sorry for him so I brought him up to bed with me. I got into big trouble. When he was confused, he pooped all over the room. Prince did not have the great life our dogs have now but in the 14 years we had him, up until I was 21, he was cared for and respected just not smothered by the love that future generations of my dogs would enjoy. I wrote a song for him called Prinny and John Revel painted a portrait that I've still got as a reminder of my lovely dog who accompanied me through those critical early years. I do feel sorry for kids who do not have the pleasure of an animal companion. Rest in peace, Prinny. Next door to Tenwoods Lane on Northgate, there was a pair of semis built by the same builder, Roy Cheeseman. The one adjoining the side of our new house was soon bought by none other than my Uncle Bill and Aunt Gert, who had moved from the local council estate with their four children. They were all authentic Sewells. Incredibly, two Sewell brothers had married two Coupland sisters and now they had come to live next door to each other. The sisters were alike and had an enduringly good relationship, but the brothers didn't share the same values, and it showed. I don't know whether my parents entirely welcomed their new neighbours, but I did, for it gave me the companions of my own age for the first time, with my double cousins, Jeff, Barry, Bob and Heather, providing me a ready-made family. The two households were complete opposites in culture, and I loved going over to the chaotically relaxed setup next door. Where my mum was fastidious and disciplined, her sister was slap-happy and you could do what you liked there. Dad liked routine and order as instilled by his time in the forces. It showed in his garden and garages, but Uncle Bill had a yard with a corgi called Sandy who he kept tied up, a pigeon loft and a shambolic garage. They were chalk and cheese, 
and the contrast benefited my hitherto rather myopic upbringing. The double cousin nearest to my age was Bob, or Monk, short for Monkey, as he was known in recognition of his climbing ability. A year older, he looked after me as if I were a younger brother, right through our childhood and up to when we both got married and had families of our own. We shared adventures, friends, enemies and sporting challenges and I remember him sorting out a bunch of rackets players who were giving his talented young cousin a brutally hard time in a youth football match. Our monk could scrap. He was earning far more than I was and I'll never forget how he used to look out for me in every way. If 1963 saw the birth of Beatlemania, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and the I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King, it was also a notable year for Paul Edwin Sewell, the last year in primary education shaping much of which follows. On the good side, I excelled at Cottingham Primary School Sports Day, winning the high jump in a tense jump-off in front of a packed playground. Hence I wasn't so bothered about failing in the sprints. Outright pace was something I never enjoyed and some of my peers could run like the wind. Being awarded the heavy, dark green first team football shirt with its big white collar was a proud moment. We did the school proud by sweeping all before us, winning every competition open to us. Our exploits even gained national attention in Tiger, one of the many comics published around then. Fame? I'm going to live forever. Hull City's glamorous new centre forward from Sprotley, Chris Chilton, even came down to the school to mark our achievements. Tall and athletic, in a smart suit with slicked brill-creamed hair and a modest sort of swagger, if that's not an oxymoron, I was transfixed and I wanted to be him. Now. My occasional visits to Boothbury Park with Graham France took advantage of the practice in those days of opening the gates at half-time to allow spectators to leave, but hence also allowing the likes of us in for free. It was a good investment by the club, for following the Tigers would turn into a lifelong obsession. I became a proper fan in the truest sense of the word. Chris Chilton went on to become a whole city legend and a record goalscorer of 222 goals. He was coach, manager and a symbol of a bygone era when the beautiful game was just more wholesome and connected to its community. The infamous winter of 1962-1963 was brutal and the Hallgate school playground was frozen in sheet ice for weeks, preventing our playtime games of football. Some of us took direct action with salt and spades brought from home, but to no avail. The winter sports aficionados had their day in the cold and we had to wait for the throw. The bitter weather played havoc with football and in some parts of the country, snow lay on the ground until mid-May 1963. It came at the same time as the school was informed that an unprecedented three of our footballers had been selected to represent the East Riding in the annual match against Hull Boys. John Bealby, David Borrell and Paul Sewell raced into the playground after being told by a proud head, Mr Hassam, and we challenged the rest to a game, 3v53, which I'm sure we won. The downside of 1963 was my sporting success wasn't replicated in the classroom. Indeed, it may have contributed towards my academic failure. 
I can remember sitting the pivotal 11 plus exam in an impatient mood, hankering to get out into the fresh air for our football game. I didn't understand the mathematical progressions or the various shapes and forms. Anyway, nobody told me it was that important, so I treated it as such. Imagine this happening at school nowadays. When the results came through some weeks later, and an envelope was presented to my mother outside our house in Woods Lane, I honestly didn't think it was a big deal. Cottingham County Secondary Modern School on Highland Way was brand new with lovely fields, pitches and a swimming pool that my siblings, who had been part of the initial intake, had helped to raise the money for some years earlier. It had a reputation for great football, producing such players as Manchester United and England centre-forward Stuart Pearson, who would precede me in the Hull City Academy, but he made it into the first team and became a role model for us in my generation. That was enough to ease any worries about not going to the academic Beverley Grammar School. That was a bus ride away, and anyway, I came from Cottingham, not Beverley. When the results were announced and my wish to stop in Cottingham was achieved through failure, Mum didn't see things in quite the positive way I did. I was more than a disappointment after my wonderful upbringing I'd enjoyed, and like my siblings and through my father, I'd had everything I could wish for and still couldn't make anything of myself. I was going with the thickies, deserved a slap, and got one. More than one, in fact. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Philip Larkin I forgive you, ma'am. It didn't help when Graham France came round waving his envelope heralding success and a happy future. Oh, fuck off, Franny. Never felt secure with you in goal anyway, you useless spiky black-haired twat. Dad was cool. My siblings expected nothing more. I had what I wanted. Jobs are good'n, as they would say in the fruit trade. It took my mother ten years to be placated, and that was at the graduation ceremony in Leeds, when her and dad saw me in cap and gown, picking up a first-class degree. I stood on dad's foot as, first up on stage, I edged along the row. He issued a rather loud Humber Street expletive, but not in rhyming slang. I wished it had been. The sewers are on campus. Jobs are good'n. An education is about more than academia and exams, and I had the lot. Brilliantly well-rounded. It was not an education bubble, but all human life was there, including the bad guys, and of course, most importantly, girls. Bollocks to people judging in such a way at an early age. It's outrageous. I don't know whether I spent a lifetime overcompensating for that early failure and mum's reaction. It doesn't feel like that, but I did learn later that this is a characteristic of future entrepreneurs, so maybe I did. What was important was that a few great teachers, Peter Gaskin, Harry Dean, Neville Chamberlain, aided and abetted by Brian Chubb, the best sportsmaster and mentor any boy could have, believed in us. They believed in our small cohort of half a dozen of Cottingham Secondary Modern School's very first six formers, and they wanted to subvert a crap system of selection and rejection at 11. They had guided us through GCEs when those exams weren't supposed to be taken at a secondary modern school. 
they are taking us through good A-levels and even more outrageous offence against educational convention at that time. They found what each of us was individually great at. For me, that was the calculus. Believe it or not, for a kid who couldn't do a simple mathematical progression at 11. A gobbledygook of Y's and X's, I just got it, whereas most didn't and couldn't. So I think it's worth reflecting upon that rather unusual and unlikely secondary education. Cottingham County Secondary Modern School Secondary modern schools were created for those young people who were not academically inclined to give them a technical education and get a trade. The school was housed in a relatively new but functional, uninspiring three-storey brick-built block with a flat roof and metal windows. A design of its time, it had the advantage of being set in beautiful parkland in Highland Rise on the outskirts of Cottingham on the way to the lovely market town of Beverley. The football and cricket pitches were set in woodland next to Hull University's award-winning Lawns Residential Village, which gave it the feel of a world-class campus. As initial entrants, my siblings even helped to raise money to build something that was unheard of at that time in any school, a swimming pool. My generation a decade later gained the benefit they had provided but never experienced. The school's comparatively distant location from home meant I stopped for school dinners rather than going home at lunchtime. This together with a bike ride to and from school was part of breaking ties and growing up. Classrooms were supplemented by technical facilities you would expect at such a school. Woodwork, metalwork, car mechanic workshops, domestic science for the girls, rural science block outside for the boys who were condemned to gardening and work on the land. All of this was lost on me. The school never had a less manually dexterous pupil. The staff were what you would expect. Practical teachers from industry rather than specialist academics with the pre-war approach of discipline first and nurture second. For example, our PE teacher, very important for me as you can imagine, was Mr Bateman. Obviously from a military background, he handed out punishing physical fitness drills to the extent we hardly played a game or saw a ball. 25 stride jumps class, he would bellow, and we all did star jumps in unison. Anyone even slightly out of step or finishing a fraction late was subjected to, oh, Mr Gossip wants to do another one. Well, we'll all do another one then. 25, please. Press-ups and sit-ups were the order of the day, and I must have been good at them because Mr Bateman gave me an A for PE with the unprecedented report comment, a good strong boy. Praise indeed. However, all I wanted was a ball and a football pitch. That came through the first year football team, which had the basis of the title winning squad from Hallgate Primary, supplemented by some wonderful players, like the strong athletic Clive Berridge from Little Wheaton and the wily Tommy Cook from Dunswell. This team was managed by our art teacher Don Blakey, a tall, round-shouldered, affable, balding Geordie who must have been clever because he wore a cap and gown in assembly. You are indeed hopeless at art, Sewell, but you do have the redeeming feature of having very clean ears. Like most Geordies, he loved his football 
and therefore relish getting control of this wonderful little team. Our only real rival for the East Riding Under-12s title was Driffield School, and Don had a bitter and somewhat childish rivalry with their young sportsmaster. I didn't play in the first game, an unusually close goalless draw. Don's nemesis was scathing about our lack of quality for such a renowned team. The Driffield camp was saying that they only had half of their good players out and the result would be a convincing win for them in the return. Tensions rose. The long-awaited return at Harland Way saw a 6-0 massacre for Cottingham, with me scoring all six goals. Don was beside himself with joy, having vanquished his youthful rival. I received a special mention during assembly. He also gave me a ridiculous A for art on my report when I deserved a D at best. For years afterwards, when we came across each other, he would chuckle and say, Soul six, Driffield nil. You should have seen his bloody face. In the next room to Don in the art block was the craft classroom, or more accurately, the torture chamber. The tall, black-haired, big, straggly, moustached teacher was incorrigible. I will never know how he got away with it. It did not need any particular misdemeanour for him to drag a boy out of his seat, mainly me actually, to inflict some particular innovative form of physical punishment. Putting a boy's head in one of the cloakroom lockers on the side of the room for the duration of the lesson was standard, with one of the lower lockers an upgrade punishment available to him. Another one was to make you stand facing the revolving chalkboard with your nose resting delicately on its surface. If your nose came off the surface, he would bang the back of your head and your nose was painfully squashed back against the board. If it was dutifully resting on the surface as instructed, he would pull the rotating board up quickly and take the skin off the end of your nose. A really good old-fashioned hefty clout across the back of the head was always an alternative if he wasn't feeling innovative that day. He was cruel, but a fairly obvious nut job. The head teacher, on the other hand, was a more sinister piece of action, and I still wonder about him to this day. This small, grey-headed, grey-suited man had an icy stare to match his demeanour, and had a fearsome reputation in the area for being a Methodist disciplinarian. This was tolerated apparently because his was a decent school with good results and a growing reputation. Uniformity ruled, even down to the stripe on a sock. Hair length, off ears and collars, and plimsolls in school to replace outdoor shoes in order to protect his pristine new premises. A breach of this code always attracted a disproportionate sanction and I was a top target. My first run-in with the fearsome Eric Greenwood took place less than two weeks from my arrival at the new school. It was break time and everybody was in the playground as it started to rain. Pupils, hoping to be let in to dry, were instead kept outside in the increasingly heavy downpour. Eventually, kids filling the playground began chanting in unison, Hey! 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 to draw the attention of the duty master to their plight. The chanting didn't stop as teachers then walked into the playground, fearing a prison-type rebellion. Eric heard this and intervened himself, coming out of the school doors and onto the steps. There was an immediate silence, apart from one voice which seemed oblivious to it, 
picking up the hey, hey, hey once more. That lone protester was little me, and I became the object of that icy stare. Get to my office now. This was to be the first of my numerous and regular visits to see Uncle Eric the Ogre in his lair. What's your name? Sewell, sir. What? Paul Sewell, sir. Of the same family in the rest of the school here, Eric inquired. Although my mother had instructed me to deny any association with my rowdy, troublesome cousins, I told the truth. It was my undoing, and the start of a long, loveless relationship between Mr Greenwood and me for the rest of my school life. I don't blame Eric for pursuing me and making my life a misery, for it was in fact no less than I deserved. I was a real pain in the arse, but he relished corporal punishment too much for my liking. Although it was part of school life back then, there was something rather unseemly in the joy it appeared to give Mr Greenwood as he brandished his cane with the swirling black gown puffing him out. It was too theatrical and he was far too good at it. On one occasion, I was falsely accused of bullying Andrew Higgs in the playground. Some proper bullies had hung him upside down from the railings and asked if I could use my football prowess to strike a ball to hit his ginger head from across the playground. I purposely missed before going across to let him down and place him the right way up again, thinking that was the end of the matter. At the next morning's assembly, however, those involved were summoned to the head's office to take part in an investigation of the matter. I was cool under interrogation and explained that I was the one who had gone to let him down. Eric wasn't having any of it and I was found guilty of not preventing it in the first place and sentenced to six strikes of the cane. Unfortunately for me, Eric was on good form that day. He swung perfect and the timing of the strike on my bum, exemplary. On the way home, I felt blood trickling down my upper leg and was caught examining this injury when I got in. Dad was in a fury as he put a jacket over his vest and jumped into his van to head off up to the school. He never mentioned anything when he returned home, but the next morning at assembly, I was summoned once more to the head's office. Eric calmly told me that he'd had a visit from my father the previous evening and claimed that my father had threatened to use the cane on him if he ever laid a hand on me again. I said okay, and got out of his office as quickly as I could, thinking, Paul will go to the head's office had been words uttered more in our assemblies than the Lord's Prayer. Continually guilty of low-level disruptive behaviour rather than being a real troublemaker, I only wanted to do sport and the classroom bored me. My strategy was therefore to be in it as little as possible. From being excluded by the teacher and told to go and stand outside for the duration of the lesson, to hiding myself in broom cupboards and bushes to avoid any class I could. They even created a special exclusion house for me and those like me. Called Polaris, I would spend my time writing endless banal mind-numbing lines such as the cat sat on the mats. I didn't care. Our new young modern PE teacher Brian Chubb seemed to like me and see some worth in me. I thought he was great as he played for top amateur football team Hendon who had just won the amateur FA Cup at Wembley. 
It only takes one person to believe in you and start a turnaround. And I credit this wonderful all-round sportsman and great teacher as being one of my saviours. Brian was so innovative for the time. In our last year at school, he took the first 11 over to Holland to play in an international football tournament. It was here that I got together with Carol Lowther, the school's hockey captain. Ian Grandage was trying to court her and I wanted to prove a point. We were together for four years and even got engaged, but it wasn't to be and we split up at 21. As for the tournament, we lost on penalties when John Revel put the last one wide. I was down to take the pressure kick, but bottled it and slotted mine home earlier. Disgraceful, really. It was in Holland that I spent my first and only time in police custody after young Peter Jolly decided to get all light-fingered on a shopping trip and take some gifts home and got caught by store detectives trying to get them too cheaply. This meant that our shopping party was taken into the basement to wait for the police. Mr Chubb was not happy and I don't blame him. The mood was sombre that night as we all felt that we had let him down. I vividly remember hearing Let It Be, the last record released by my beloved Beatles before they broke up, for the first time on the radio in the dome. It was very appropriate to our mood. I have never in my life taken anything that wasn't mine, not even so much as scrumping an apple from an orchard, but I was the captain and felt culpable. When I find myself in times of trouble, sorry Brian, thank you for all the words of wisdom, but above all here, for letting it be. The big surprise came in my fourth year when I was 15. Secondary school pupils back then sat the Northern County School Certificate as their final exam prior to leaving school. Greenwood's ambition had extended this to CSEs and even O-levels for some who had done well in their exams so far. Northern Counties was basically an assessment of the level of attainment in English and Maths. At the end of the year gathering, Deputy Head Miss Beeson revealed the results. I shall never forget that day. Class Swats Catherine Potter and Gillian Lowther, no relation to Carol, were nailed on. But after she confirmed that they had their expected double distinctions, there was a pregnant pause from the Deputy Head, for there was somebody else who had surprisingly reached that elite level. And Paul Sewell? was almost an incredulous question rather than a statement of fact. Everybody turned round to look at me quizzically, maybe wondering how I'd fiddled. I shrugged. My priority was to get outside and start kicking a ball about. I didn't give two hoots about the result, only that it gave me the right of passage to stop on at school to kick that football about. I never told anybody at home, apart from brother-in-law Len, who would patiently help me do my homework and gave me the confidence to believe that it wasn't that hard as I thought it was. For that he deserves massive credit, and I will give it to him here. Cheers, Parksy. All my family had left school at the earliest opportunity at the age of 15. It came as a mild surprise, therefore, when I announced that I was stopping on to do CSEs and maybe even O-levels, if the CSEs went well. Cue another one of those discussions at the Sewell family dinner table when people, or more accurately my dad and my brother, talked about me as if I wasn't there. Looks as though he's not coming to work then, Isaac, 
Ronnie said referring to my dad by his long-term nickname derived somehow from his associations with the city of York rather than any Jewish connotations. No, he's stopping on at school to get educated, Dad replied, still failing to acknowledge my presence. How long will that take then? Could be a while, and education takes time. You mean it could be years? Could be. He might leave school to retire, Dad chuckled. I don't think they meant it, and were quite proud really. It was all in pursuance of that more attractive of soul traits of not taking ourselves too seriously. The fifth form offered a few challenges. First, it was at a time when school prefects were chosen to help the teachers with discipline and display the right values as role models. In return for this, they were granted privileges like their own fifth form room where breaks and downtime could be spent in more adult surroundings. I have no argument with the precedent I set by being the only pupil to make the sixth form never to have become a prefect. It meant I spent all my breaks with the younger kids in the playground. I came to the conclusion that my chances of making head boy were slim. Second, I had picked up a bothersome knee injury, which curtailed my football and consigned me to bouts of treatment and endless laps of the school field to try to build strength back up in the legs. I hated the school's obsession with cross-country running, and this was very similar. I wore an elastic knee bandage when I did play, and some of my colleagues started intimating that the problem was in my head. They may have been right. Throughout my football career, I seemed to be more bothered about the small knocks and niggles, where some others had no problems playing through them. I think that I did possibly have an element of the Nancy boy fanny that some of my detractors call me, but my time in the classroom was going better, and more productively perhaps as a consequence. Surprisingly, I liked the algebra that was part of the mass curriculum. Identifying the unknown and finding its value was right up my street and still is now. I got into English literature through that wonderful book To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which examined human values as well as providing literary understanding. Surprisingly, Shakespeare's Macbeth also took my interest, maybe because the plot line was not dissimilar to what happens at a football club. Essays became less of a chore as long as I could tell a story. I've always loved storytelling and later found it to be the bedrock of leadership and creating a successful culture. Once again, a great teacher was responsible, this one being my English master, Mr Cox. Stan Cox was a lovely, gentle-natured man whose habit of continually coughing to clear his throat before he said anything became an unfortunate source of amusement for the class. He didn't deserve that, but he got it. He liked me, and I liked him. We had a mutual interest in football. Indeed, much later, he helped me get my badges after we were reacquainted on an FA coaching course. For some reason, I was really good at exams. I studied the right stuff in the right way and remained ice cool under pressure. It was just like taking a penalty. Prepare, practice well, stay cool, and anticipate only success. Consequently, the results of the CSEs and O-levels were surprisingly good, and the school persuaded six of us to stop on and do A-levels. This was unprecedented at a secondary modern, and said much for the school's ambition. There was a desire to prove a flawed education system wrong, 
and a thirst for what was to become known as social mobility in the face of a rigid class system that operated in Britain at that time. In fact, it still operates today, which is why, as I write, I have joined up with the former MP and Education Secretary, Justin Greening, to promote her social mobility pledge amongst employers. I found A-level pure maths, applied maths and physics a different challenge altogether from the O-levels. Here you had to know your stuff and apply it, rather than just have a good memory so as to regurgitate information effectively. That there were so few of us in the group was obviously an advantage, as more individual coaching was possible. Mr Dean, Mr Gaskin and young Mr Chamberlain, whose first name was unfortunately Neville, were endlessly supportive and patient. Their endeavours over that two years were well reflected in the ultimate outcome. A set of kids branded thickies and warned by head teacher Greenwood at the outset that they were destined for manual work at best had confounded the system and achieved results way beyond expectations. Fuck em. It was the biggest boost for social mobility since Franny bowled out the posh boys of Hammers College. University and higher education now beckon Peter Berry, Peter Dean, Glyn Griffiths and Ian Grandage. Not me though. I was off to play first division football for Blackpool. Or so I thought. 50 years on, just before writing this, I was asked to go back to Cottingham Secondary School to give the prizes and address the pupils on speech day. They thought they were getting Dr Paul Sewell OBE, owner of the Sewell Group, not a disgraced former pupil who had ignominiously departed their institution. What they didn't realise was that they had actually expelled me in 1970 after I'd finished my A-levels. Even I didn't realise it at the time. Eric Greenwood had his final revenge and the last laugh. His little surprise was broken to me at a job interview with Clugston Construction in my mid-twenties when I was trying to get a better job near a home. I was actually on honeymoon. Imagine having your honeymoon at Normanby Hall, Scunthorpe. So and I did, having gone over the river to try and get a job for me that would make our family life easier. The interviewer asked me why I had been expelled from school and I replied that I hadn't been. He then showed me the record that confirmed that indeed I had. Mr Greenwood had taken the opportunity in my last two weeks absence at a cricket festival to do the dirty deed and write on the leaving record that I had been excluded. A touch of pure vitriolic class for which I actually admired him, if for nothing else. I didn't get the job, thank goodness, for a couple of years later I came back to Hull to join F. Sewell and Sons Builders and to miss what happened there would have been a shame. For that speech day, I used the concept of writing a letter to my 16-year-old self. It proved to me an excellent idea and went down pretty well with the pupils, so I've taken the opportunity to insert it into this book as an appendix. It says much about my school days and what I really learned at the wonderful Cottingham County Secondary School. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. Then your teachers do likewise. Thank you all for giving me such a great start in life.